Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering a range of conversations from our coverage during the International Liver Congress 2022 and from this week's Surfing Nash wrap-up episode. This conversation centers around the Phase 1 pembidotide trial that Stephen presented at ILC 2022. Pembidotide is a combination GLP-1 glucagon agonist. The study focused on its impact on an obese population of 34 patients, eight of whom had liver disease. After Stephen shares key data about exceptional weight loss, the discussion veers into a focus on the implications of aggressive weight loss and where it might fit among different other bariatric and NASH options, including different kinds of bariatric surgery. In general, the group agrees that the weight loss that pembutide shows might give it a real place in NASH therapy when approved if it performs throughout the trial process as it did in this study. ILC 2022 covered a vast array of issues around drug development, non-invasive testing and patient screening and treatment, and the entire process of provider-patient communications. On each topic, there were conversations that can enlighten every fatty liver stakeholder and promise a more optimistic future for us all. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. My message is just for those that they say we're done, we have a FIP4. I want to highlight the fact that there were papers and presentations that showed people in the indeterminate and low FIP4 areas, they might have outcomes. So yeah, we, we need to increase awareness. We need to see what's the FIP4. But if people are submitting a paper and we still don't have a gold standard, maybe a reference standard for now from the guidance, but not a gold standard and any test that is cheap and important for primary care physicians is welcome to show its effectiveness. So at the risk of using American sports metaphors, which I try not to do on this podcast, FIB4 feels to me like first base, right? You haven't scored anything yet. You're not even really in scoring position, but you are on base. Michelle Long. Roger, I thought we were still talking about the blue pill there for a second. Score three. I guess my comment on the FIB4 is you have to just know the context. You have to know what's your question and how are you thinking of you Using this test because it is extremely useful in the right context and to answer the right question. And you need to understand that the usefulness changes depending on the disease prevalence in the population or in your sample. That is something that's not intuitive. The more that we see these examples, I think it's really helpful to see, look, when we apply this tool that's appropriate in one setting to a different setting, look how it performs or doesn't perform. Stephen Harrison. Moving on to another interesting drug target for NASH. It's called pembutatide, which is a dual GLP-1 glucagon receptor agonist. Now, the report that I gave here was on a phase one study, not the single ascending dose portion, but really the multiple ascending dose portion. So in this particular trial, there were 34 patients. They were generally overweight or obese. So this is not a NASH population of patients. However, eight of the 34 did have liver fat content present in their liver, so I'll come back to that in a moment. They all had generally lipid panels that were at the upper end of normal. So first of all, you know, I think this was a provocative paper looking at the safety of this drug and some early principles related to pharmacokinetics. It's worth mentioning that the reason this drug was even thought about for NASH was a couple reasons. Number one, remember GLP-1s work on satiety centers and they work on gastric emptying to, to help 
modulate weight loss. There are no receptors in the liver for GLP-1. Alternatively, glucagon does have receptors in the liver and it's essentially there to rev up lipid metabolism and increase overall metabolism. So when you put the two together, just to spell it out in crayon, it's like not eating and exercising at the same time because you're, you're cutting intake of calories and you're increasing the burn rate through the liver. So that's the way GLP-1 and glucagon works. And this was a balanced approach. The other thing with this one is it's got a U-port domain on it that binds to albumin and it lowers secretion into the bloodstream because it forms micelles. And in so doing, you lower Cmax and you prolong Tmax. Theoretically, you could hypothesize that that would improve tolerability and mitigate the need for dose titration. So with the MAD, first looking at the pharmacokinetic profile, what we found was that the Cmax was low and the Tmax was prolonged out to 70 hours. And when you look at the half-life of the drug, it was consistent with dosing it once a week. So you had a, a relatively low Cmax, a prolonged Tmax, and a half-life that was consistent with once weekly dosing. Again, when we moved to some of the clinical data that was collected, I'll come back to safety in a moment. With the clinical data, I'll first mention the atherogenic lipids were all reduced more than what you would see with just standard weight loss. It was kind of more around what you'd see with a THR beta as far as reductions in LDL, total cholesterol, and triglycerides, as well as ApoB. There was a drop actually in HDL cholesterol. Now you can see this in acute weight loss, tends to mitigate itself and work itself back to normal with prolonged weight loss. So if you look at studies that are longer duration, like with ketutatide or terzepatide, there's no change in HDL, but it's well validated that you tend to lower HDL in the acute setting. When we look at liver fat content reduction. Remember only eight of the 34 patients had quantifiable liver fat, but at the dose of 1.8 and 2.4, 100% of those people had huge reductions in liver fat. In fact, below the limit of detection, level of detection, and overall representing about a 90% drop in MRI PDFF at six weeks on therapy. Didn't really measure ALTs. I mean, they were kind of in the normal range to begin with. We did look at a glycemic control parameters. HbA1c did not change, but HOMA IR did change. Glucose did not change in this short period of time. Looking at safety and tolerability, there was a dose-response relationship to adverse events. They tended to be more upper than lower with nausea and vomiting and more grade 2 events in the higher dose, 2.4. And there was a little bit of constipation at the higher dose, 2.4. But uh, having said that, consistent with what we know about these mechanisms. So there was also, for those interested in liver volume, there was about a 14 to 15% drop in liver volume with the 12 weeks of therapy. So maybe I'll, I'll stop there and see what anybody has to say about that. Mazen Nuruddine. I thought it's actually one of the most amazing responses within a very short time frame. The weight loss was significant. Mm. Remind me, Stephen, if I remember correctly, the more than 5% weight loss was 100%, right? Within a short period of time. Yeah, thanks. I didn't even mention the weight loss. My goodness. Okay, so weight loss at week 12. It was a, a dose-response relationship between placebo 1.2 and 1.8, with the 1.8 having around a, a 10% overall weight loss, a plateau effect 
contract with a 2.4, it kind of came down to around the 9% range. When you looked at those that had lost 5% of their body weight, 100% of those patients receiving 1.8 achieved that. And it was over 50% of those patients that actually had a 10% weight loss reduction. I showed waterfall plots for each of those as well. Looked like there was a plateau effect with the 1.8. I did get asked a question about, did you find the right dose to carry in a NASH trial at 1.8? And, and I made the comment that we're not sure because our mean BMI was 31. What if you got a 45 BMI or a 50? Maybe you need that higher dose to achieve you know, a drug level that, that will help with the weight loss. Yeah, so I, I was quite impressed. It's like the, the 10% we're looking for, just put, to put it in perspective, the well-known Romero Gomez study from Cuba Achieving 10% of weight loss was in less than 10% and over way more prolonged period of time. Here, 55% had 10% weight loss within 12 weeks. So I think the GLP-1s, this one is dual G, GLP-1 glucagon, they're coming as a monster to the field in a good way. And we have to talk about a little bit about the similar presentation in cirrhotic and if we have time. So to me, when we started staring at the slide with these numbers, it gave a lot of hope. Of course, we still have to see fibro and changes and all that. But we know the rule of thumb. It's like if you lose 10%, you improve fibrosis. So that needs to be seen in future studies. And the company started getting obesity, rightfully so. It gives us another substance to add to the glass half full from this presentation. So I just wanted to comment on the weight loss and the, the extent of it and, and put it in context. Other comment? Jorn Schattenberg. It was a high degree of patients that achieved normal liver fat, I think. Uh, that was uh, highlighted by you. Uh, and that's also a very impressive, I think normalization in the MRI PDFF. We've talked a bunch at the end of last year about the Splinter study and what you could achieve even for cirrhotic patients with bariatric surgery. These numbers in the long run, would you anticipate that this can reduce demand or need for bariatric surgery or are we still at the points where this will help with some people but probably not help with that if you had a guess? I actually asked a question to the company after or one of their leadership. What is What do you expect in six months and do you think the drug will be stopped because the People, now they look in shape and nice. So I definitely think that it would, would reduce the demand for bariatric surgery. But I want to also borrow some data from, or some yeah data presented with GLP-1s, in, in particular the semaglutide data and their step programs and their follow-ups on patients. About two-thirds of the patient actually regain weight over time. So I think it needs to be seen in the future is if that drug is going to be lifelong or continuous because of relapse and, 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 and weight gain in some patients. Again, one-third, they will not regain the weight. Also, there will be a comparison in the degree of weight loss. So just a reminder, these drugs are still not as good as bariatric surgery, in particular the ruin Y. So uh, the question is, the BMI of 45, would there be a lot of failures that they still require bariatric surgery? They're as good as endobariatric, actually. So it might actually, when these results came out from, like, the Lilly results, I question if endobariatric was still in play, unless if they combine with the GLP-1s. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our final ILC22 wrap-up, Scott Friedman and Neil Henderson discussing some of the basic science issues from the meeting. Please join us for all that. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.